Coming up on episode 10 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Richard Fagerlin. And when I said it, the audience kind of gasped. They sat back and 80 to 90% of them folded their arms and looked at me like I was a moron. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks for joining us. I'm Randy Lane. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Richard Fagerlin. Richard is known as the Trust Guy. He's written a book called Trustology and is the founder of an organizational development firm called Peak Solutions. We dig into the subject of trust and learn why Richard thinks the common idea that trust is earned is a big lie. Now, Richard Fagerlin. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Richard, for agreeing to be on our show today. Uh, For those that are listening, Richard and I have known each other for a number of years. I don't even know how many years it goes back now, but uh, Richard and I met a long time ago, and so he's had an incredible career. So when he agreed to be on our show today, I was very excited about it. So welcome to uh, Richard Fagerland. Richard, why don't we start with you telling us just a little bit about your background and kind of what brought you to decide to be in this business and then up to where we are today. You bet. My pleasure, Chip. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Uh, so my my corporate background is I worked for a Fortune 150-something company, about $13 billion, but it was uh, agribusiness, and we served clients all over North America, uh, basically farm families, farmers and ranchers, and we were a supply company to all, all of their suppliers. And I grew up on a farm and ranch, and so that was that was a great natural transition for me. Uh, however, this was my first foray into a very global and corporate environment. And I had a, a job early on where I was running leadership programs, leadership development programs, uh, some for, for up-and-coming young people and some for existing folks. What happened to me was early on, I got appreciated and um, mentored by a really great leader. And he gave me lots of responsibility. I immediately was thrust into positions of, of leadership and had had a team. And uh, it's funny, I had, a, I had a team of six or seven folks that were more in my age category. And then there was about five women on my team that were all older than my mom. I, I learned quickly a bunch of what not to do as a leader and I just am very thankful for that role. Our company was big into mergers and acquisitions at the time. And when my boss or his boss didn't want to go roll out or, or integrate or, or communicate with a new merger and acquisition, I got tapped on the shoulder to do that. And I didn't know at the time, but that was one of the greatest learnings I could have ever had because, one, some of these were hostile, some weren't hostile, but I got to go and represent the organization and had to really learn how to think of an enterprise mindset, corporate mindset, rather than just a department or division. And in that role, I think my the most important piece of that was I got, I got opportunities to be with our executives, our C-suite, fairly regularly, just to hear their thoughts, to kind of download what they wanted to have shared. And so at an early age in my career, I got to see what happens around that executive table. And I realized 
the ceiling didn't part, sunshine didn't rise in, and beautiful ideas didn't float down on that executive table that in many cases they had no clue, just like I had no clue, uh, but they were willing to make decisions and they were willing to, to risk things. And that was, that's was that been really helpful for me in my career to, to understand the you know, the mindset of a C-level leader. And so that, that helped me through my career. I had several positions where actually every corporate job I was ever in chip was created for me. And in a company like that, that's, that's a pretty unique role. So that's why I call myself certifiably unemployable because I've never actually applied for an existing job. They've all been created for me based on my unique talents and skills. And the last job I had, I was a human resource executive and I split my time amongst five of our customers. So I was basically on loan to five companies and uh, it was it was on September 11th, 2001. I was doing work for some of those clients and I had one of those moments of what on earth am I even here for? Mm-hmm. And I want my life to matter and I want to do things that, that impact the world in a great way. And, and I was ready to do anything radical at that point because of what had happened in our country. On a five-hour drive home on that day, one of the things that I realized, most people are going to spend the majority of their lives at work. And most people, if they had a choice, they wouldn't spend the majority of their lives at work. There's other things they'd rather be doing. Matter of fact, most people are working so that they can do these other things. I dedicated that day that I was going to give my life to making that process suck less and to be more valuable. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that would look like. That's your motto? I, yeah, I want my yeah, life to want, suck less. I want your life to suck less. My <laughs> life's awesome. <laughs> the bumper stickers didn't sell very well, so I no. a box of those. <laughs> so it took a while, but Chip, it was it was about a month or two later that I actually met you and determined that partnering with 360 and creating a leadership development and consulting firm might be a great way to start that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I thought I would really maybe go and buy some other business along the way. And I didn't intend when I started in, uh, I think we met in November, December of 2001. I didn't intend to, to do this work long term. I thought it would be something I would do for a couple of years and then go find something, uh, you know, corporate to do. And the deeper and wider I got into it, the more I realized this is exactly what I was built to do. And to that cause on, on September 11th, it helps me fulfill that in a great way. Well, we're somewhat kindred souls in that way, because I believe that I'm psychologically unemployable at this point as well. And, uh, you know, there's a risk in having a job and there's a risk in being self-employed. And it's a matter of which risk do you handle better. Obviously, you know, you and I have had multiple conversations. There's there's turmoil and struggles and rewards and everything that goes with both. And so this, you know, tends to fit some personalities a little bit better than others, which is great. So, well, one of the questions I ask everybody that comes on the show is to give us an example of a, a good and a poor leader that you have worked with, been associated with, have a story, you know, tied around it. So we usually start with the positive leader. Who can you point to in your life that you would say exemplifies great leadership? Well, I had a couple of leaders back in that corporate background that I worked for that I think really shaped the way I think, the way I, the way that I look at leadership. Both of them, both of them in different ways are, are really, when I talk with others about great leaders, I'm thinking of Eric and I'm thinking of Gary and what these guys did. The first guy, here I am 
a couple of years out of college and he looks at me and he says, Richard, I don't think that my job is to teach you to fly, but it's to give you wings. Hmm. And I wish that I would have, I wish my answer would be, I looked at him and thought, wow, that's so amazing. Thank you so much. But instead, I think I rolled my eyes and said, whatever, man, because I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know what that meant. But today on the other side of that, I totally know what that meant was that, you know, Gary knew for the time that he was going to have me and he knew that that wouldn't be long, that he was going to give me as much tools and resources and put me in as many positions and opportunities as was possible. And one of the things that he did really early on, I had a, I had a, a fairly, in, in my mind, a fairly significant budget and some decisions to make around that budget. I had a choice to make one day on some marketing. And so I went to him and I said, Gary, I have two options. I have option A and option B. Option A cost X and option B was about half of X, but it was you know significantly less in the, in the entire package. I said, what do you think you should, what do you think I should do? And he sat back in his desk, he smiled, kind of put his hands together and he said, well, Richard, if it was your money, what would you do? I hadn't thought of that. And I said, well, if it was my money, I'd do the half of X because it gets everything we want and it doesn't have any of these extras that we're not, we maybe don't know are going to be valuable. And he said to me on that day, he said, if you'll spend our money, like you spend your money, you never have to ask me this question again. I'm one of those types of people. I actually took that to heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't ask a lot of permission. I just did things. And there were times when I would get a, a phone call from him or an email. And one time in particular, he asked me, where, I, where have you been? And I had, I had flown my team to Minneapolis to spend three days at a conference. And uh, I told him that. And he's like, well, it would have been nice to know. I'm like, well, you told me, you know, go spend my money. He's like, well, yeah, I mean, you kind of need to let us know back at the office (laughs) where you are. So the point with Gary was that he gave me lots of rope, but he never let go of the rope either. And then the other leader that I worked for did a lot of the same things. He believed in me. He put me into positions where... I didn't believe in myself, but he believed in me. The The most important part there was he didn't just throw me out to the wolves. He gave me very clear expectations, and he was very clear about the outcome that was desired, and he allowed me the flexibility to achieve that. You know, In the work that, that I do, I get to interact with people that are a lot like both of these guys. I think other characteristics of great leaders, you know, a genuine care and concern and some level of vulnerability, I think, make great leaders. Mm-hmm. But not everybody, you know, if you're making this list, not everybody, if they go out and seek to achieve those few things that I said, does that necessarily make them a great leader? Because I think the best leaders are the ones that are most comfortable in their own skin. They are who they are, mm-hmm. and they're unabashed about that. Well, what about the flip side? Have you ever been around, associated with, or tried to help ineffective leaders? And <laughs> what does that yeah. look like? Yeah, I was working with a client once who was trying to implement some programs across the company, and one of his leaders tried doing something that was a bit off script, and the guy's name was Henry. I saw, I was in the room, and he looked at Henry, and he said, Henry, the next time you decide to think, don't. (laughs) And I'm like, well, (laughs) thankfully, I was there, and so I I looked at Henry, and I said, Henry, what I think think he's saying is, I kind of did some translation. (laughs) And, and I, and I've actually worked for leaders like that where, you know, I really don't want you to think I didn't hire you for your intellectual abilities or your, your uh, personal unique design and strengths. I hired you to go grunt something out and not just grunt something out, but to grunt it the exact way that I thought it should be grunted out. That type of leadership where you're under communicating, you're not, you know, where Gary and Eric were outcome specific and they communicated what the expectations were, these bad leaders 
sometimes don't even know what they're expecting, mm-hmm. but they'll let you know when you don't achieve what, what they want, but they didn't communicate that. And I think sometimes they over communicate. So it's both the over and the under communicating where it's micromanagement and then under communicating where I mentioned that Gary gave a lot of rope, but he held on to the end. And there was always, you know, there was always at some level I could tug back on that. I think some leaders give you the rope to hang yourself, but they forget to tie it onto anything. Sure. Just release you. And, and so the, the truth of the matter is with clients or with an employer in my personal history, when I've had leaders like that, those assignments didn't last long. And it was usually my decision because I just couldn't thrive in that situation. You know, that's interesting when you said the next time you think about thinking, don't. <laughs> The reason why I'm an entrepreneur today was because of something very similar to that. I had a, I was in a part of an organization. We were growing through acquisitions, uh, mergers and acquisitions, so on and so forth. I was in Denver, Colorado, of all places, met Roger Allen of Preston Pond and came back to the company I was working for. And I said, look, I've got this great opportunity. And I laid out this wonderful program of merger and acquisition, because that's what our strategy was. And I pitched it to the president and the CEO of the company. And at the end of my presentation, I remember it like it was yesterday, jokingly, but not jokingly, he said, oh, young grasshopper, I don't pay you to think, I pay you to do. So Mm. next time you start thinking, don't. Mm-hmm. It, almost exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so instead of taking that and saying, okay, I'm going to do what my boss tells me to do, I actually went the opposite direction. I flew back to Denver and I bought that company and I quit that job and that launched me into an entrepreneurial career. So yeah. it can definitely sway one way or the other. So if you're a leader and one of your employees approaches you with an idea that you don't think is the greatest... How do you talk them out of that or talk them down or talk them into something else without making them feel like they've been rejected? I think a key to that and and, you know, Chip, your story, I, you know, I, I could I could give 50 of those in, in my own personal history as well, or maybe 20. But I, I think that the, the problem is those leaders are actually right. They didn't pay you to think it didn't. They weren't desiring for you to go out and find the next merger or acquisition. So that's right. And what they wanted you to do is to do the task at hand. That's right. The delivery of that message is where it's all wrong. And I think I think that we need to be honest. So let's go back. I think a great leader is one who's comfortable in their own skin and they know who they are. So they're not going to pretend to listen to you and to entertain your ideas if they're really not going to listen to you and entertain your ideas. And they need to communicate that. And I think a way to communicate that is, Randy... I love the way that you think. I love your ideas. And I and I actually love that you're always thinking of ways to get better around here. However, you have got to understand that that's not our culture. It's not that the thinking's not our culture, but to go execute on that's not our culture. So what I want you to think about this is as a marathon, not as a sprint. And what I want to say is that won't work, but I, I know better. I know that maybe that's an opportunity. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think about within the context of our culture, how could that work? And I want you to think about how to communicate that. And I want you to bounce that back and forth off of me over time. If you can't figure out or we can't figure out how to make that work in the context of our culture, then I want you to be prepared for that. But if we can, then let's do that. And so that's coaching. It's sometimes what, what, what we're dealing with here are idea people who don't necessarily need that idea to be taken care of. They need to know that their ideas are valued and that there's some way to improve. 
I had the same experience. I had a portion of my time when I was that human resource executive where I had extra time on my hands that I wanted to do my own consulting. And I presented to my boss, let me go out and grow some consulting clients outside of our base client base here. Let me get a 25% commission on that. The company would get the rest. If they would have done that, it would have totally paid for my salary plus on the on their piece. I would have got a nice spiff and bonus. And instead of saying that message to me, just like Chip, the message was, hey, no, not going to do that and stop thinking like that. And I'm pretty sure it was within about 90 days that I went out on my own as well. And so not everyone is going to go out and leave. I think you have those flight risks. I think the Chips and Richards, you're probably going to lose no matter what. Yeah, I would agree so with the that. Goal, the goal isn't to keep them in the organization. The goal is to mine them for all the value that you can get mm-hmm. and to get the most out of them for the period of time that they're there. For the companies that can do something about that, then I think you know a system or a process for vetting that. Uh, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and this is home to OtterBox. A lot of people have an OtterBox case on their phones. Uh, Kurt Richardson's a friend. He's the founder of OtterBox, and he's super entrepreneurial. And one of the things they do for their employees, uh, this would be Kurt's in my great leader category. Every employee at some tenure in their in their life get to sit down with a, a certified life planning coach and consultant, and they get to create a life plan for their life on the OtterBox dime. It's like a multi-day, two or three-day thing that they get to do one-on-one. And they've lost a lot of people because in their life plan, they found out that working in the accounts receivable department, <laughs> you know, collecting money on it's not a know, part plastic of their, molding. Their life plan. <laughs> no, it's not part of their life plan. So they've lost a lot of people. You know what else they've done? They basically created a venture capital firm that invests in people's ideas. And there are several businesses that exist because someone said, you know, this is my heart and my passion. And they said, you know, can we put something towards that? They've improved their own business. They've started businesses and they've launched people. Uh, They talk about promoting them to customer when they leave. Uh, You know, really, this is a promotion to to be a customer in in a way that says we value your thought process. And if you're going to be miserable here, you should pursue that. Because we know we're not going to get your best and we need to replace you with someone who's going to get their best and you need to live a life that's giving your best. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but those are some examples. Do you think it's important for a company to kind of cultivate that kind of thinking in their employees? I think a lot of employees are kind of in reaction mode and they look at their long to-do list for the day and they just plug away. But for the, the company and the leadership to say, you know, we really are open to any ideas you have that might help the company or might might make you feel more fulfilled. Is that something, you, you know, every company should strive for? I don't think so. I, I think actually it's rare. I think I think it's a few companies should strive for that. And here's the reason, because it will be disingenuous if every company strive for it, because not every company has the culture, has the resource to do that. You know, I work for a lot of engineering firms. You know, if a civil engineer comes to their boss and says, I have this great idea for an app we should sell so that our customers could better understand their tension structure or the, you know, the strength of their peers. And, you know, the, the company's going, that's, you know, maybe that's a great idea, but that's not our, that's not our water to carry. That's not our, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not our area. And if they say we want to hear your ideas, but they really have no intention of doing anything with it, then I don't think would I want to work in a company that did that? Absolutely. 
And so I think the, I think the bigger question here is what's at the root behind these types of organizations? And I think what's at the root is valuing people and pulling out their individual strengths. So should every company do that? Heck yes. Three thumbs up. I mean, absolutely, every company should value their people and should desire for their unique gifts and strengths to be pulled out. When you can't say, give me your ideas, let's pursue that, then what I do think every company should say is, what are your unique gifts and talents, and how can we help you do that more? Well, I'm going to pivot a little bit here and uh, talk about your book. Richard has written a book called Trustology and uh, the Art and Science of Learning High High Trust Teams. And I've read it. It's awesome. You know, we uh, had you speak at our conference a year, year and a half ago, and a lot of the people there wrote it. And I uh, read your book and bought it. I know you just <laughs> spoke at a, a large SHRM conference in front of thousands of people around this subject title. So... Let me ask what what made you decide to write a book on on trust? Actually, in partnering partnering with with UChip and Three Sixty Solutions, there's content around trust. And so let me let me seriously take you to the beginning. I was asked to speak at a conference of realtors about 2003 2004, and I was asked by a local leader, a well known local leader who has lots of influence, if I would speak there. And so I had no choice but to say yes because. You know, when Larry Kendall asks someone to do something, it's an honor. So I said yes, but then I thought, oh my goodness, what do I have to share with realtors? I'm a business guy. I'm a leadership guy. I'm a management guy. What possibly could I share with them? So I go and look across the library of, of content, and I'm thinking, let me just pull a little something from everywhere, and I'll give them kind of a broad view. And I came across the content around trust. And it's good stuff. There's a, there's a trust model, which I share in the book. There's mm-hmm. some other discussions. There's a few exercises and games. So I pulled together what I thought was a pretty good discussion for an hour on trust. So I'm speaking to this group of about 100, 150 realtors. And in the midst of speaking, something came out of my mouth that I'd never thought, <clears throat> excuse me, never thought before and never heard before. And when I said it, the audience kind of gasped. They sat back and 80 to 90% of them folded their arms and looked at me like I was a moron. Do you normally get that response or is this, was this unique? Or? <laughs> Not at work. <laughs> That's a, that is a normal response. Here's my, here's what the logic at the time. I can either look at this audience and say, listen, I just made that up. I don't even believe it. <laughs> Chill out. Or I could argue my position. So they're the they're the antagonists. So I chose at that moment to take the protagonist position and I defended what I said. And what I said was, trust isn't something that you earn. It's something that you give. And if you're never going to give it, you're never going to get it. And it's counterintuitive and it doesn't necessarily make sense. And in the 13, 14 years since then, I have, I have made you know, that, that mindset, I've studied it. I've looked at it. I've seen it at at work in organizations. I've seen it at work in relationships. I've seen it at work in my own life. And it is an absolute truth. And so my joke is, I don't know if that was a bad burrito or an inspiration from God. I think I know that it was the latter, not the first, but you know, that came out of my mouth at that conference. The next week I shared it again and that group argued and I argued back I just kept going deeper and wider. And then all of a sudden people would, I want to know more about that. I want to know more about that. So I started doing a lot of research, a lot of study. And when I would find teams that were struggling, I would use that concept here of, are you trying to earn trust? Or are you giving it? And what does that look like? 
So over time, I started getting asked to speak on that topic. And I would speak on that topic at a conference, you know, keynote or breakout. And people just like lined up, you know, dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds, wanting to talk more about it. And they started asking me, well, do you have a book that we can, you know, hear more about this? And about that time, uh, this is about 2006, 2007, I started making trust the capstone half day, the last half day of all of my ongoing leadership development work. So we'd spend six, eight days with a with clients, and the last half day would be this teaching on trust. After a couple of years of that, I, I started getting feedback that, why are you giving this to us at the end? It's really the foundation. Like, why, why are we getting this at the end when everything should be built on that? And if you think about the analogy of, of building a house and how important a foundation is, you know, I know this is a great, it's a, a great Sunday school lesson and it's a great life lesson. And, and, and my, my structural engineering clients would say it's a great lesson, period. If you build a house on sand, if you're, if you're, if you got, you know, sandy soil, there's only so far that you can build that house up without some major engineering. If you go out and you find, you know, really hard soil, then you can build it a little higher. If you've got this gigantic rock that you're building your house on, you know, the, the height that you can go is pretty significant. And so if trust is the foundation of our relationships and our trust is low, it's like building our relationship on a foundation of sand. It doesn't take but a few high tides for that sand to wither away and for that foundation to go to the side. But if you fill, build that foundation on really, really strong levels of trust, then there's a lot that we can do. So I don't just think that the message on trust is important. I think it's critical to all relationships. And so about three years ago, I finally put my head down and took all of these thoughts and experiences and client engagements. And I and I put out the book and it's it's been a really, really neat experience ever since. Yeah, we talked uh, yesterday for a couple of minutes in preparation for today's interview, and you talked a little bit about the SHRM conference that you just spoke at and the thousands of people that were there and so on and so forth. You know, when you're asked to do a session like that, is there some main key things that you go to every single time when you're working with leaders or around trust? I think the the core piece of the message is very consistent. And uh, the core piece is that we've been believing lies about trust. And I shared with you the biggest lie, and that is that trust is earned. And from my experience, a vast majority, more than half, a vast majority of people are super invested in that lie. They've believed it. They've been told it. They're telling people that, hey, you got to earn trust. I'm not saying that you go out and just blindly give it, but that's a big lie that they've learned. They've also learned or believed that it can take a lifetime to earn trust, but it can be gone in a second. You know, just just doing the math chip on it takes a lifetime to earn it and a second to lose it. That that risk reward is a pretty poor proposition. Mm-hmm. And if it takes a lifetime to build something, you could lose it in a second. I don't want to be that. I'm not going to invest in that. And and what I think people are saying is. I give a lot of energy to gain this trust and you can do something and I can feel like it's gone immediately. And so I, I understand that. Mm-hmm. And in order for trust to be earned over time, the problem with that is we have to keep score. And so if you and I are in a relationship and I have to earn your trust or you have to earn my trust, somehow we have to keep a, a, a mental or in some cases a, a physical representation of, you know, have you done enough good for me to trust you? Your scorecard and my scorecard aren't the same thing. So I feel like I've done everything I can do to earn, quote, your trust, but you don't keep score the same way. And so we have great room to be offended. And this offense, I'll talk about that in a minute, this offense that we feel is just a gigantic barrier 
to building trust. And so the problem with keeping score is that for most of us, even those little six-year-olds who are playing soccer where they're not keeping score, everyone's keeping score. And when you keep score, there's two types of people. There's a winner and there's a loser. And when we talk about relationships, that just doesn't make sense to me. So I think that's central to the kind of the thesis of this whole idea is that none of us are good enough or ever will be good enough to earn another person's trust. Now, the disclaimer in this is I'm not talking about blind trust. I'm not talking about just, you know, offering up your <clears throat> all the passwords to all your financial information or, you know, even leaving your your house unlocked. You know, people say, well, why do you lock your door? It's like, well, I lock my door because it's not that I don't trust people, but I want to keep honest people honest. And I want to, you know detour unhonest people. If someone wants my stuff, they can get it. Mm-hmm. Me locking the car is not going to solve that. I'm not saying that I don't trust you. I'm saying I'm a responsible citizen. I'm going to lock my door. The other thing is we're not we're not just blindly going into relationships. I think that if you think about crossing a busy street, nobody says, well, I just trust automobile drivers to not hit me. Mm-hmm. So I'm therefore just going to walk out in the middle of the street. That's not trusting. That's, that's stupid. You yeah. know what that is. <laughs> What they do is you wait for the light to turn red. You look around to your left and right a couple of times. You wait to see if there's other traffic coming. And then with confidence, you walk. And that's what I'm promoting here in this strategy is don't just blindly walk into relationships. Yeah, be, pay attention, have discernment, and then look to the left and right and then walk straight ahead. Pay attention, pay close attention in, in that process. I, I do know that there's a challenge with this. And this was what those groups with the crossed arms and the scowled faces presented me with. And so this disclaimer, I think, is important. I do think that there's opportunity for people to take advantage of you if you have this mindset. It is. It's possible. It's possible for people to take advantage of you no matter what. And so the the percentage of people that can take advantage of you is so small. I think it's 2%. It might be 10%, whatever the number is. I have a choice. And the choice is I can treat everyone like the 2% or the 10% and never get burned. Or I can treat everyone like the 98% or the 90% and every once in a while get burned. And I think of those two strategies, the one that benefits me, my team, my organization, my family, my community, my church, my whatever is treating everyone like they're good and that they're, they don't need to earn your trust and that you're going to give it. And every once in a while, you're going to get burned. But to not let that be the prevailing thought. So I have this idea and my wife and I kind of joke about it. We call it airport karma. So if somebody asks you to take them to the airport, I blindly just say, yes, I will do that. The idea being that at some point, if I need to go to the airport, they're going to be more likely to say yes to me. And this extends not just to the airport, but about if I let my wife go out with her friends, then maybe later she'll be more likely to let me go out with my friends. And the idea is that I'm not actually keeping score, but at the same time, it's like we're mutually giving to each other in a way that at some point when you need something, you have the the trust and you have the, the goodwill that they're going to help you out. And I think the piece to make that actually work is when it doesn't work, are you still okay with it? When you've taken me three times to the airport and then you ask me and I say no, does that offend you more than if you hadn't taken me the three times to the airport? Hmm. Because if it offends you more because you've taken me three times, then you in fact are keeping score. Hmm. And I think that's the I think that's the key here in this whole process is we get offended <clears throat> by those we care for and love the most. I don't get offended by some guy walking down the street telling me I look bad. I get offended by, you know, one of you who I've known forever who helped me pick out this shirt that says you look bad. 
And it's the same statement about the same shirt. And so are you willing to let your wife go out with the girls and for the time you're like, all right, I'm going to go out with the guys. And she's like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, the garage needs, you know, you, you've made some promises here to the garage. And you're like, but I let you go out with the girls. Yeah. You know, if that takes place, then then that's not true airport karma. That's true airport, you know, scorekeeping. Yeah. And so because in the, you know, I'm no expert on karma, but I, I think the intention of that is that what you put out, you're going to get back. And so it might not be from the same person. And just generally, it's good to care for and serve other people. And when we do it with the expectation we're going to get something back, that immediately sets us up to be offended, to be hurt, and to be frustrated. And, and I'll tell you, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt everybody involved. The root of that offense actually is selfishness, I think. It's just a me-focused thing. And we are selfish people, so you're not going to ever live a life where you're not selfish. But can we be a little less every time? Mm. When I find myself being offended, I think the best question to ask is, why am I offended? Someone I love does something to me, and I'm offended on a 10-point scale, 8. Someone I don't care does the exact same thing to me, and I'm only offended a 3. Why is that? And, and what's going on there? And is the issue them or is the issue me? And this right here, I mean, this is not the prevailing thought of our culture. Would mm -hmm. you guys agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is part of my life mission is if we could rid the world of offense, that'd be great. Here we are in a political season, a political cycle. I mean, everybody's just waking up every day to be offended. I, and, I was going to say, where, where did the right to be offended become such a big issue? Everybody and their brother nowadays seems like if you do something that offends them, that you should be punished because they're offended. But, you know, I don't understand why that has become so predominant in the way we see things now. Like, we, we don't want to offend anybody, ever. Well, it's what, what it is, in, in some cases, is an art to silence people who disagree with me. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and we'll save this for a totally another, another <laughs> podcast around... Certain sides of, of the aisle, and I'm not talking right and left, Democrat, Republican, though that does fit, but certain sides of aisles of issues, one side has, has maintained the responsibility and the right to communicate whatever they want and has somehow learned to stifle the other side. And it's, you know, it's some bully tactics and it's, you know, it's a frustrating process. And what this has generated is this, this idea of political correctness. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a fan of political correct, but I'm also not a fan of just being a raging idiot and, <laughs> you know, saying bad things and mean things and hurtful things. And so we've lost the art of communicating the heart of issues, partly because in, in the process of dialogue, we're not starting out with this like mutuality where we care about each other, where I'm not putting myself above you and not putting you above me and that I actually care to hear what you have to say and I care to communicate what I have. And so we don't go into conversations like that. So we really don't want today. I mean, let's let's be honest. Today, in in the, the realm of this conversation, we don't want debate and dialogue. But when you've limited debate and dialogue, you lose two things. You lose intimacy and you lose opportunity for, for good communication. You know, while trust is the foundation of all of this, I think the fingers that spawn off of, of all of this go so deep and they go so wide. And most of them end at the same place where they end is the the mirror of the person you get ready in the morning. Mm -hmm. And when you're standing in front of that mirror, I think that's the root of a lot of these problems. We don't have the power, control, influence, or 
or ability to influence, to, to change other people. But we do have all of that within ourselves. And if we don't start there, then we're not going to expand or grow our influence with other people. You and I have, again, worked together for years, and we teach a lot about emotional intelligence. You know, that we're emotional beings that justify with logic. We're not necessarily logical beings that have to use our emotions. And so how do you see emotional intelligence tying into people that are trustworthy versus not trustworthy? Is it, I mean, is trust based on a feeling you have towards other people or is there empirical evidence to prove that someone's trustworthy? So two parts, I'll I'll address the EQ second. The first part is I think, I think a trust is a verb. It's what you do. It is not a feeling. The feeling that you get from trust are confidence, a lot, a lot of different feelings you get when you have trust. And so I think that trust, you know, how we define trust is confidence in my, you know, my, my relationships with other people. So I think that you can have low confidence and you can have high confidence and that looks like to others, low trust or high trust. Well, what it is, is if I have low confidence, then verb trust is low. Like what I'm going to do to give trust is low. If I have high confidence, verb trust, then I'm going to actively give that trust. And so when you think about the trust model of uh, trust is built on this three-legged stool of integrity, confidence, and compassion, that's where we start. That's where we start collecting empirical evidence and data in our relationship. So I'll have people at the beginning of a session, write the names of three, write the names of three people you don't trust down. And every once in a while, there's someone sitting next to them that's written down and that's awkward. So we try and avoid that. (laughs) (laughs) So don't you two do this you know, in the studio, <laughs> but you write the names of three people that you don't trust. And as I've shared everything I've shared already today, then I get to this point with a three-legged stool and I say, all right, let's evaluate these three people. Is your issue with these people an issue of trust or is it an issue of integrity where there's not wholeness? They don't do what they say and say what they do. They don't fall through with their commitments. They don't communicate effectively in a way that shares the person they are today is the person they're going to be tomorrow. So the root form of the word integrity is integer, and integer is a whole number. And so integrity is really about wholeness. So that's one way to evaluate it. The next one is around competence. And some people, you know, competence is absolutely critical and important. And it's because they've got a lot of competence. A lot of people have alphabet suit behind their name because they believe the best way to gain influence is to have a lot of knowledge, a lot of degrees, a lot of uh, other people saying I'm competent. To me, that's not competence. Competence is about having the knowledge, skills, and abilities to get the job done or being able to acquire the knowledge, skills, and abilities to get the job done. And then I'll add in the ability to broker the knowledge, skills, and abilities to others to get the job done. And so then that's an area where I'm going to judge my level of confidence is around your competence. So I'm going to look at your integrity, your competence, and then the last leg of the stool is compassion. And compassion is not just about you know, this uh, pink slipper, fuzzy dice, kumbaya moment where we're going to group hug it out. You know, compassion is about a true care and understanding of other people and, and wanting to know where they come from. Oftentimes when people are in conflict, we try and present our position like that's going to get them out of conflict. When instead the compassionate response to someone in conflict is, wow, this is important to you, isn't it? And that's not a an disarming comment. It's an it's the right comment. And it's the right way to show compassion is this is something that's important to you. And so when Rand, when Randy's giving me three trips to the airport <clears throat> and then he asked me to give him one and he's like, what the heck, man? 
<laughs> then I can say, instead of saying, hey, listen, you, did you expect me to do that? Instead, I say, this is something that's important to you, isn't it? And then he can say, well, yeah, you know, I just, I've done a lot for you and, and I didn't think this was asking much. And now we get to have a conversation around that area of frustration because I'm showing compassion to him. And I, and I think that, so, so now what's the confidence in those three areas? And like 95% of the time, when I share those three areas and ask people, is the issue with the people that you wrote down, is it an issue of trust or is it an issue of one, two, or all three of these things? Three things, the hands go up. And so people's issues aren't necessarily trust. It's about someone's integrity, competence, or compassion. Mm -hmm. And the power of that, and it really is a power, I call it the scalpel. That's the scalpel as a surgeon, a relational surgeon, allows you to go in and determine what areas do you need to fix, what areas do you need to communicate about, and this is a perfect lead. This is a perfect segue and lead into your your previous comment is that I think the higher level of emotional intelligence you have, the better your ability to do this. Absolutely. And and that self-awareness of where you are, because it's, you know, our intent is invisible to other people. So we may believe that we have a high level of integrity. We may believe we're very compassionate people or we're very competent. Uh, unfortunately, our intent, you know, people can only judge us by our actions and what they see and what they feel. And sometimes there, it's lost in translation of what we believe we are and what other people believe or perceive that we are. And so the more we communicate and talk about things, the more it, it becomes clear. Yeah. I mean, this here's what this is. It's, it's super simple. It's just not easy. Mm -hmm. And at the core, this is what we were built to do. At the core, this is, this is how we were designed to have relationships. But then we get in the way. And emotional intelligence, here's what I say to groups that I'm with. I say, if I'm going to pick one reason why you're in this room and a colleague, a classmate, a friend, whomever, the reason they're not in this room, the reason why you grew through the ranks and they didn't, if there's only one thing, it's probably your emotional intelligence. It's your ability to see yourself and others in a way that will let you be more successful. And I think it's an absolute critical component in all of these relationships. You know, in this space, we're talking a lot about individual relationships. I, I think it's important to note that organizations have the same uh, – this works organizationally too. You can work for a company that you don't feel you have high confidence in their integrity, competence, or compassion. And so I hear often from folks who have, who have been hurt or been frustrated or, or you know, just, just doesn't work inside their organization, inside their team, inside their church, inside their you – know, just fill in the blank. Back to the emotional intelligence piece, it is having the conversation about this in a way that – gives a name to the problem, that's one of the greatest earmarks of, of highly high EQ. And, and that's what that's what trustology has done. I, I often say I haven't cracked the code on trust, but I have cracked the code on how to have a conversation in ways that people normally have not been able to have it. Mm. And so it's setting them up for success in having conversations about these very sticky issues. Yeah, I'd say that every organization that I know, any individuals that I work with, if you start looking at problems that they have with other people, it usually comes down to a lack of emotional intelligence or trust with other people. That's yeah. usually the core, uh, the root cause. And it's emotion driven. It's not always right. tied to logic. They can't tell you exactly why they don't trust somebody. You know, they, it comes back to a feeling or a, and, and to help them dissect it and understand why they feel the way they feel. And what's driving this behavior is a, is a skill. I mean, it really is. And it takes time. You just don't learn it overnight. Well, I think a set of questions. I, I think every leader should have a, an index card with go-to comments. You know, one of them when you see someone in conflict is what I said before. Wow, this is really important to you. 
Mm-hmm. That's a like that's a great segue. Uh, tell me more about this. You know, that's a great segue. I think a set of questions. Uh, you can call them coaching questions, or you can just call them getting to the root cause. One is tell me more about this, and then and then after you've heard that, say so. Is what you're telling me is this is this fact or is this emotion? And our emotions are facts, by the way. Of what you're telling me, what is absolute fact and what is feeling or emotion? Okay. Is that the total truth? Okay, let's dig deeper. I'm not suggesting that you're not telling me the truth. I'm just suggesting that we get to the total truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you were me or if you were them or if you were someone on the outside, how might they see this differently? Because I don't think people wake up every day with the intention to screw with you and to make you hurt and to frustrate you. I really don't. I think it just comes natural for too many of us, <laughs> right? If that's the case, do you think that they're intending to do that? Well, no, they're not intending. Because if they are intending, that's a totally different discussion. Yeah. You know, when I'm working with clients, if, if they've got an employee who's tending to co- is intending to cause all of these problems, well, then let's weed the garden. Yeah. You know, let's let this person go on to greatness somewhere else. But if that's not the case, which is not often the case, then let's keep going. And so, okay, so what's, what, what good could come from this is a great question to ask in the midst of these frustrations. What good could come from this? And then the next question is really important. What's the first step you could take towards getting that good? And we just keep we just keep moving along that continuum of asking some questions that get to the root of how can I impact this and what can I do to make a change there? Well, Richard, let me ask you this question. If I if I wanted to work with you, how would I find you? How, how would I get in touch with you? If you didn't already know me, you'd probably only hear about me from someone you know and respect. The last 15 years have built this practice solely on the back of personal relationships, connections, and referrals. Partly because I'm not for sure that someone who found our firm on a Google search, I'm not for sure that that's going to be the right type of client. So when, mm-hmm. when, when the people that I know, love, and respect have already determined someone would be a good fit, that's a good fit. So, so that's, that's a key. We value organic growth with our clients, and then we value people who have been referred to by, by other clients. However, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, business in the last few years has come from um, my speaking endeavors in the book, and I get to have a lot of conversations with folks because of that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've got a, a blog that's richardfagerland.com, and our corporate website is peaksol, short for Peak Solutions. Dot com and there's a lot of information on there what I what I try and do with every potential client is I try and spend 30 minutes on the phone convincing them not to do work with us and that's really my very first my very first reaction is I don't know that you want to work with us let me tell you all the reasons why you probably don't and at the end of that if they're like no we still want to then we can move forward I don't need to tell you why that's what you called me. You already know why you want to do work with us. And so what I'm trying to find out is, are you looking for a feel good intervention? Are you hoping that by putting 30 people in a room, it will fix one person's problem? Are you hoping to be done, you know, start something and, and one and done is going to fix your solution? Or are you trying in nine months to do what you should have been doing for 12 years? Uh, all those things, go find someone else that, that can do that. If, if clients are committed to long-term ongoing engagement and the, to do the difficult things day to day, then we want to talk some more mm-hmm. and we want to be committed. Our, our objective is to work with you at a minimum two to three years, pushing whatever rock you're asking us to push together for that time. Now, whether we end up working that long, 
that's okay. But if your intention isn't to, to push this for that long, then we probably don't want to, we probably don't want to work together. Is it safe to assume that you work primarily around leadership and teams and building high trust cultures, that kind of stuff? Yeah. The, the majority of our client engagements are ongoing long-term leadership development. Chip, what I say is that leadership development is kind of like the cheese that you put your pill for your dog in. Mm-hmm. You know, the dog needs to eat the pill. And, and our clients know what the pill is. The pill might be succession planning. It might be continuation of um, ownership. It might be you know really, truly developing frontline leaders so that they can be more effective and better, all of those things. And what we wrap that pill they're trying to fix, we wrap it in leadership development because it allows us to have great conversations that frame up that other conversation. So we might work with 10 clients side by side and have 10 totally unique outcomes, but have the exact same 10 agenda or content. And then because of the book and because of some of the other resources related around trust, we do do um, a lot of speaking engagements, breakouts, one day things. I've got, um, it's funny, the book the average number of copies that the book sells uh, directly through my website is is closer to a hundred now. Organizations are buying them, you know, fifty and hundred and two hundred at a time, because what they're doing is they're trying to filter this throughout the culture of their entire organization. And lots of them are doing that personally, like they're leading that themselves. And and quite a few, honestly, are hiring us to come in and come alongside them to do that. So that's. That is a bit different than mm-hmm. the leadership development because that's more of a like an annual initiative or something like sure. like that. So the best way to get your book, if we want to get it, is to go to your website at peaksol.com. Yeah, actually, if you go to trustologybook.com, that's where the peaksol will take you. Okay, great. Trustologybook.com, you can buy it there direct, and there's uh, bulk discounts. Wonderful. Well, I know we we have uh, had you speak at our conference. We had a number of people buy the book there. I've read it. I think it's wonderful. And I congratulate you on all the success you're having with it, which is great. And trust is something that we both know, all of us know, is absolutely critical, not only at work as a leader, but also at home with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, with every single person you come in contact with. It's something that's critical. It's a life skill. So I think it's a very valuable subject title. I'm glad you tore into it and have come up with some great meat around the subject title that people can learn from. I I really appreciate you being on today's show. It's been wonderful. Uh, Hopefully we're going to have you back again fairly soon. Randy likes to ask a question to everybody that's on our podcast before we wrap up. and, And that is, are you right now, are you reading any books? Are you listening to any podcasts? Or is there any thought leaders out there that you think we ought to pay attention to that have some cool, interesting stuff to think about? Yes, to all that. I think there's, you know, this is what's amazing about our time. This this kind of time of, of life today is we have access to the greatest thought leaders in the world with the click of a button. And uh, we can read their books, listen to their to their podcasts, and we can grow and learn. What I try to do is to limit that so that I'm focused. Last year, I read a book that has been you know, mind, mind-blowing and super impactful, and it's Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Mm-hmm. I think I've given almost 200 copies of that book away to other people. Uh, I've read it four times. I mean, it's just a fantastic book. 
Uh, you don't implement the the ideas of an essentialist. You become an essentialist. So that's a it's a great book. Every listener should should read. I am I'm digging into right now the coaching habit, which is which is a great book. And what I'm doing right now, I'm actually revisiting two or three books from from my past, partly because of some projects that are coming up, but partly because this fall I'm going to be launching um, one an online course and two a second book. And so I'm I'm digging back into leadership and self deception by the Arbinger Group, mm-hmm. and then I'm I'm going back to a Harvard Business Press book called Strategic Speed. And so. Um, those are the, the 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 books that I'm in the midst of right now. I listen to what I try and listen to are are podcasts like this one where it's curating other thought leaders rather than simply listening to one thought leader. I love the Dave Ramsey Entree Leader podcast. I think yep. it's fantastic. Uh, Rory Vaden's podcast is is a good one. My favorite communicator on the planet is a pastor named Andy Stanley. And I I devour Andy Stanley's leadership podcast. And whether you've got a church background or not, his leadership podcast is an absolute must listen. So those are, those are my go-tos. And then I've got several that I, I just follow personally. Uh, My Mm -hmm. goal is, is first to be an amazing husband and father to my four boys. So I'm constantly looking at ways to improve those areas. And by the way, I just want to point out if, if if it wasn't obvious to you all that all of these concepts we talked about, while they impact business, they really impact our personal lives. Oh yeah. And there's no separate line between the two. And if we can't get one side right, it's near impossible for the other to thrive as well. So I've rarely met someone who's thriving at home and, you know, really struggling at work or someone who's thriving at work and and struggling at home that doesn't have some tension in their in their lives. So it's important that these principles go across both of those life boundaries. Yep, I agree. Well, again, Richard, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being on today's show. Everybody that's listening, go go check out his website. Go get his book. Uh, listen, uh, see where he's speaking next. And uh, I'm looking forward to, personally, your new online course and book and everything else that's coming out this fall. I'm excited to hear about it. So I'm sure after it launches and after it gets going, we'll have you back on the show again. So again, Love it. thanks, you guys. Appreciate thanks, Richard. It. You bet. See you. All right, Talia, we're here back in the studio again talking about our high-performance workshops. So basically the idea is if you have a company and it's not running quite as efficiently as you think it should, we have a framework we've put together here at 360 Solutions that will move your company from chaos to stability to high-performance. And that's through a special system that we've developed where we start off by assessing your company and where it is currently, then we help you with your strategy, then we help you develop your leaders, and then we help your leaders develop your teams. And basically that's a a big wheel and we do the process over and over again until your company gets to where it needs to be, gets to where you need it to be. Okay, Tilly, so we have several of these high performance workshops planned. Can you kind of run down when, where, and who's hosting these events? Absolutely, Randy. Uh, First of all, we're going to have one in Jacksonville, Florida. That's going to be with David Bailey on September 15th and the 16th. Our next one coming up after that is in September. It's going to be the 20th and the 21st, Kansas City with Gail Hermish. And then we've got a couple of them in October. Uh, We have one in Minneapolis with Laura Boyd on October 6th and 7th. And then later in the month in October on the 27th and the 28th, we have one in Fresno, California with Mike Goosen. And I know we've got some coming up um, other places in the United States. We've got one coming up in Los Angeles and we'll get um, confirmed dates on that. Excellent. And so 
If you want information about one of these workshops when they're coming up, you can go to 360solutions.com slash attend, and that will give you all the information you need to know, as well as all the dates on all the different workshops. And you can actually even sign up for a ticket right there. So go to 360solutions.com slash attend. The High Performance Leadership Podcast is also sponsored by Principles of High Performance Leadership, the book by Chip Wilson. The first 100 people to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast get the book for free. That's right, free book. Go to 360solutions.com for more information. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Make sure and subscribe via iTunes, give us a rating, and leave us a review. Tell everyone you know to do the same thing. The more subscriptions, ratings, and reviews we get, the higher iTunes rates us. Visit our website at hpleadershippodcast.com, tweet at us at twitter.com slash 360 underscore solutions, and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 360 solutions LLC. That's all together, no spaces. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.